Well, we've been progressing slowly through the gospel of Mark so far, but today, um, I talked about it on the Review Previewed podcast, we're going to kind of hit hyperspeed. We're going we're gonna to fast forward quite a bit, and we're going to sail through three teaching segments today. Woo! You guys ready for that? All right, all right. So, um, so Mark has really structured and compiled these stories. Remember, he uh, got all of his source material more than likely from Peter, so he's compiling all these stories that he's heard in order to lead us to this very ironic moment, an ironic ending at the end of this teaching segment. And so we're not going to look at all the ins and the outs of these stories today, but we will see the ironic ending together. Um, And I think we'll see it better if we look at all these stories in one setting as opposed to like, okay, teach this, teach this, teach this. Let's teach it all in one setting And then we'll arrive at the ironic moment together at the end. And so, um, just from the start, I readily admit um, that there's a lot more that we could see and study and apply from these verses, but I give them to you and read them on your own, pray through them, ask God, what is it that I'm supposed to see here practically from my life? But in this section, there are a couple of literary themes that Mark utilizes throughout the gospel narrative, and we're going to see them highlighted here today. Um, And we actually spoke about these themes in the second week of our series when we discovered that this gospel that Mark writes, that he compiles, is a gospel of irony and mysteries and questions. Okay, so like irony abounds, mystery abounds, and questions like are all over the place in the gospel of Mark. And we've seen it so far. We're only going to be in a chapter three today. But so far, people who encountered Jesus in this gospel often left scratching their heads. Like they just can't quite wrap their minds around who this Jesus guy is. And questions pepper the landscape of the gospel of Mark. They act kind of like landmines that are intentionally placed by the gospel writer Mark so that once you step on them, you're forced to answer them and then deal with their explosive ramifications. So he's going he's gonna to put questions all over the place that you're going to be forced into answering, and then they're going to blow up what you've previously thought about who the Messiah was or who he would be or what he would be like. So very intentional writing, literary device that Mark uses, and you're going to see it in the text today as we move through this in rapid speed. So as we work our way through the passage, please notice all the different question marks that you come across as we're led to an ironic ending. So please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to make our way all the way into chapter 3, verse 6. And some of you feel comfortable writing in your Bibles, marking them up. Some of you don't. So whatever you want to do with that. But sometimes it's helpful to, to circle the question marks just so you can kind of see your way through the text a little bit. And look at what Mark writes down. This is what he says to us. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? Question mark. And Jesus said to them, can, a wedding guest, can, the, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Question mark. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. 
No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Next story. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Question mark. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who are with him? Question mark. That was a really long question, wasn't it? (laughs) And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Next story that Mark tells us, he's compiling this. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So it's kind of a subtle question that doesn't have a question mark, but they're watching. They're like, okay, wait, we got to see this, see the outcome of this. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, Question mark. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. May God add his blessing to those who read and hear and seek to apply and obey this word. Let's pray. God, this is a shocking passage, um, especially when we find out the ending of it. And I pray that we would be able to know how to elude that type of ending in our own lives as well, where we would much rather find you um, the one that we ought to celebrate, the one that we ought to receive blessings from because of our association with instead of trying to destroy your work in our lives. And so, God, we need your help to do that. God, we need your help to rightly divide this word, to understand all these different things that we're going to see kind of in a rapid pace here today. And so, God, I pray that you'd be blessed by the attentiveness of your children who are seeking to learn from you now from your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so let's, let's go through these stories. Let's see what we can find out here. Um, so what we got here are questions that are fired at Jesus, right, that are designed really to trap him. However, Jesus defends himself and those associated with him, his team of followers, from these accusatory questions by counter-striking with questions of his own. So it's kind of like here's a strike and then here's a counter-strike. He answers the tough questions with even 
tougher questions that will end up revealing the condition of the hearts of those asking the initial question. So it's brilliant. Jesus is brilliant here. And all of this really started in the beginning of chapter 2. So I want to refresh our memories a bit. Because there's five stories that Mark tells. We're going to tell three of them today. But all five of them are going to lead us to this point. So at the beginning of chapter 2, remember back with me. Jesus is teaching in a packed house. And people express faith in his ability to heal their paralyzed friends. So what do they do? They go up onto a roof, they dig a hole in it, and they lower him down in front of everyone to see. And Jesus says something very surprising. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees were questioning in their hearts, is what Mark says. And they say, why does he speak like that? Who can forgive but God alone? So they got two questions Why does he speak like that? Who can forgive but God alone? Why does this guy speak like he's God? Good question. People who are just people shouldn't speak as if they were God. But Jesus offers a counter question. They strike him with that one, but he offers a counter question. And then he provides physical, tangible evidence for everyone to consider. And so Jesus says, why do you question these things in your heart? Question mark. Which is easier, to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? Question mark. Well, both are very hard and seemingly unverifiable unless the one saying those things did have godlike powers. But then Jesus heals this guy, and the guy walks out. And everybody's like, hmm, this guy kind of has godlike powers, right? And the indication is this that Mark is trying to get us to realize is the reason he's speaking like God is because he is God. And then he tells another story. He tells another story Mark does about Jesus, the guy who demonstrated God-like powers, and how he, this God-like man, called tax collectors and sinners to recline and follow and dine with him in a party-like setting. So this is, this is curious. People are scratching their heads. Someone with God-like powers who associates himself with tax collectors and sinners, it doesn't make sense to the Pharisees. And so they ask a question. And they say this, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Their reasoning, look, if this guy's pretending to be God-like, why would he eat with those types of people? Good question. And here's the answer. The reason he does this is because they're the ones that are recognizing their need for him and they're willing to come to him. They are sick and they know it, and they need help, and they've been outcast from society. But here's this guy that will connect with them and associate with them, and so he makes himself available to them, and they just flock to him. And it says, many did that. Many came to him. Jesus was fully accepting and associating with these sinners by eating with them, which is something that the Pharisees would never, ever, ever do because it would make them ritually unclean. But it seems that there's a new way of being made clean that surpasses the old way, and it was a cause for a great celebration. So they're partying. They're partying in this this house, 
eating, reclining, associating with one another, which segues into the next story and the next set of questions that are for us today. This is the question, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast, question mark. And here's the context. Let's read the verses. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Question mark. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So there's a question, counter question. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So look at the text. Here we have some people, Mark doesn't say it's the Pharisees, but some people are asking a question to Jesus about fasting because they've seen notable religious leaders in their day engaging in this type of religious practice. And they're wondering why he and his disciples, who are starting to gather a following, why aren't you doing what everybody else seems to be doing? And that's a legitimate question. So let's think about fasting. In the Old Testament, fasting was used for multiple reasons. We're not going to get into all of them, but let's talk about the one specific day that every Israelite was mandated to fast. You had to do this. And it was only once a year, and it was for the Day of Atonement. On that Day of Atonement, every Israelite would fast in order to engage in an act of repentance so that they could be prepared to experience the cleansing once that goat was slaughtered and once the other goat was sent on the backside out, slapped on the backside out over the horizon in the wilderness, like talking about taking our sins away. It's covered and it's taken away. That was the one day that Israelites had to fast, mandated. But listen to this. We know from other gospel accounts that the Pharisees took pride in the fact that they did what? They fasted twice a week. So they're mandated to do it once a year, but the Pharisees would, would like boast in the reality that they would fast twice a week. We read that in Luke 18. So what we see is that they're skilled at going over and above the law in order to attain and then retain some sense of righteousness of their own merits. They're good at, at racking up and consuming religious things to make them look good, but in their legalism, they're missing the point. And so Jesus offers a counter question, and he says this, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Question mark. And the obvious answer is no. But why is it obvious? Well, here's the logic. Think about this. Does anyone ha has anyone been invited to a wedding so far this summer? Like getting ready for the wedding? Anybody? Okay. Maybe some of you. Weddings are typically joyous occasions, right? Typically. <laughs> Unless you're planning one, right? Weddings are, this is the logic. Weddings are typically joyous occasions complete with feasting, music, dancing. There's something to celebrate. There's a new union coming into the world. 
And we want to party. We want to celebrate what God has done. Now think about this. What if you showed up to the next wedding that you were invited to, showed up in sackcloth and covered in ashes with a gloomy, depressed look on your face, right? You'd be a little out of sync with the reason for which you were invited to the wedding to celebrate. To express remorse and sorrow would be inappropriate in that setting because it doesn't fit the occasion. And so Jesus says this, look, as long as they have the bridegroom, me, with them, they cannot fast. He's saying, there's no reason for mourning right now. This is a time when people who are in need of help can recline and dine with me, just like the party we had the other day. Redemption is here. The culmination of all those previous Day of Atonement goats is here in me. The bridegroom was there in their midst, and it was a time not for mourning and weeping, but it was a time for celebration. But these people weren't getting it. But what Jesus is saying is, look, look, your bridegroom is here. Your bridegroom is here. It's time to celebrate and Mark puts this story here to show you that it's time to celebrate because a new age of redemption has come. Like, look, I'm associating with tax collectors and sinners. Your bridegroom here, it's time to celebrate. And to strengthen that point, he attaches two short parables that highlight that when something new comes along, you shouldn't just try to cram it into the old way of doing things. And truth serum, like, this is a passage of scripture that I've always just been confused about because it just seems like it takes place on the other side of the world. I don't really, I'm not a sower. I don't really ferment wine and wineskins, so I've never really quite understood this one. But look at what Jesus says. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What he's getting at here is this. Using a valuable new cloth to mend an old tattered garment doesn't make sense. That cloth will eventually shrink or something. It will tear something away. Pouring uh, pouring fermenting wine into an old worn out wineskin won't work because it's damaged already. It's already been stretched to the max. And it will burst if you do that. And then you will ruin the new wine and the wineskin. The new thing is here is what Jesus is saying. Look, so rejoice in the new thing. There's no reason to be sad right now. Because your bridegroom is here, it's time to celebrate. That's what he's getting at. But the questions continue as Mark compiles and tells the next story. So let's read this, 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, those are important words, they and their, these people that were associated with Jesus, His disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him, question mark. 
And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So once again, notice the, the pattern. It's question, strike, followed by counterstrike. The Pharisees had established a set of rules that they excelled at, a set of rules that they rigidly followed so that they could have an external appearance of piety. And listen, it's true that the Sabbath was to be kept holy. You're right, it is to be holy. But the Pharisees had missed the heart of that commandment by adding a whole bunch of man-made rituals and customs that were only external and they weren't required. But then they asked the question, why are they doing what is not lawful, in air quotes, on the Sabbath? And I put not lawful in air quotes because that was the Pharisees' perspective, not the God who gave the Sabbath in the first place. And so what we're meant to see here is that the fulfillment of the law had come in the bridegroom Jesus. And those that are with him can enjoy the benefits of his righteousness because he is Lord of the Sabbath. So the teaching point is this. His team of followers can enjoy what he is offering. His team of, the, the team of followers following Jesus can enjoy the benefits of what Jesus is offering to them. As he says, hey, let's go, let's pluck some heads of grain just like David ate from the bread of presence. Look at verse 25 in our text. It's important. Mark really goes out of his way to emphasize that it was those who were with David that reaped the benefits of that association with the one who was to become the king. The one who could enter in and act like a priest as well and eat the bread and then give it to others. David was just a type of Messiah to come. Jesus was that Messiah king priest that actually showed up, and he's Lord of the Sabbath. And so those associated with him can reap the benefits of that righteousness of Jesus. They aren't above the law, but the law that was put in place to show them how fallen they were was being accomplished by the lawgiver himself. But the Pharisees didn't want that. The Pharisees, who trusted in themselves, in their own abilities, just couldn't stomach this. And so it's, it's crazy, but they look and they see Jesus and his team of followers plucking heads of grain as they're just kind of walking along. As they make their way is what Mark says. And the Pharisees are going to accuse them of reaping and doing work on the Sabbath. Man, talk about nitpicking right? They weren't picking the whole field. They weren't harvesting. They're, they're walking and munching on some grain, and they're accused of infringing on Sabbath laws and customs that they had accumulated for themselves. People, that's exactly what legalism does. It's preoccupied with external piety, and it misses the matters of the heart. I was thinking about that this week. Man, could that preach in a town like Linden? <laughs> Memorized creeds, confessions, catechisms, even Bible memorization programs that we have here that are accomplished 
in order to check off a box, instead of checking our hearts to make sure that they're conformed to the image of Christ, those programs can quickly fall short of God's heart. And all of those systems and programs that are intended to develop Christ-like character in us, not just to puff us up to, with a lot of temporary knowledge that never gets applied. That's not what that, those things are about. Paul tells the Romans in Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law. Why? Because he's accomplished the law. So if we're on his team, like those who are associated with David and those disciples who are associated with Jesus, if we are associated with him, all that he has accomplished is just as much ours as it is his. And he is Lord of the Sabbath. So you know what that means? We can enjoy the rest that he gives. Amen? Don't try to come up with a righteousness on your own through rule keeping. His team of followers can enjoy what he gives. And that finally leads to our last set of questions. Look at Mark 3. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, here's a question. They've already kind of struck. They're watching him. Now he's going to counterstrike. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So it starts off with an assumed question, right? They're watching Jesus. Why do you watch something? Well, you watch it because you're, you have some interest in it, and you want to be informed about the outcome of something. So for instance, the reason why so many people watched the Super Bowl this last Sunday, like the 126 million, whatever it was, was because they had some sort of interest in it, right? Maybe they love watching football or being with people who like to watch football. Maybe they're Swifties, right? They wanted to see the 12 times she appeared on screen throughout the game. So here the Pharisees are watching Jesus to see if he will play the game by their made-up rules. And they're thinking, he better not. He better not heal on the Sabbath. He better not heal on the Sabbath because that would be work. And that would be bad. That's what they think. They, 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 they reasonably think this. He better play by our rules. He better not heal on the Sabbath because that would be work and that would be bad. Really? Really? So now bringing about life and restoration would be bad? But that's what they're scrupulously watching for. And this is what they see. They don't notice any work being done. All they see is Jesus' lips moving. 
He doesn't make up an ointment. He doesn't do the spit on the ground, make mud thing, rub it on like he's done elsewhere. He simply speaks. He says, come here, stretch out your hand. He simply speaks to bring about the healing, and when he does, he breaks the rules of their game. So now, somehow, saying words that will bring about restoration and healing is a violation of the Sabbath? They've really drifted far from shore now, right? But Jesus doesn't care about winning their game. He's happy to lose that one in order to win the one that God had assigned him to play in. And so he does good and he saves a life on the Sabbath. He's not breaking and violating the Sabbath. He's fulfilling the purpose for which the Sabbath had been given in the first place. He's willing to bestow blessings of rest and restoration to this man who had to toil with a withered hand all of his life. What Jesus did was good and it was salvific and it showed that he had won the game that his father had given him to play in and in so doing, he had won over his followers' hearts. That's why they're flocking to him. Like, you won my affection. You have won my heart. Who wouldn't want to willfully follow a guy who could provide unmerited, undeserved healing? We should all want to. But unfortunately, Mark shows us this, that there are people that are so filled with pride that they think they, think they can bring about a healing for themselves by their own rule-keeping. They don't need Jesus because they're too content being satisfied with themselves and their own ability. And so Mark is a compiler. You've heard me say that. He's taking these stories that he's heard and known, and he's putting them in succession here to get us to a point. He's been attempting to do this since verse 1 of chapter 2. He's wanted to take us on a journey to arrive at an undeniable moment of irony in chapter 3, verse 6. He's told us five separate stories that highlight who Jesus is. Jesus is God who has the authority to forgive sins, and he's willing to associate with us who are identified as sinners. And he is our bridegroom whose commitment to us is a cause for great and joyous celebration. He's the fulfillment of the law that we could never keep. And then he's willing to share his accomplishments with us to do us good and to save us. That's great news. But here's the irony. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees are presented with all of this. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The irony is so thick. How can you be just so dense? It, you can't even absorb all of it when you read these five stories. That's what they decide to do? 
The Pharisees are infuriated that Jesus did good and saved life on the Sabbath, but somehow they're comfortable with plotting with the Herodians who already arrested John the Baptist and are going to behead him. They're infuriated that Jesus did good and saved life on the Sabbath, but somehow they're comfortable plotting with those guys how to destroy Jesus. They wanted to stop Jesus from doing good while they were okay with plotting evil. This is beautiful writing. They missed it. In their legalism, they missed it. He was the bridegroom that they should have celebrated with. Jesus was willing to share his accomplishments with them, but they didn't want it. Rather, they trusted in themselves and they lost their own religious game, and instead of blaming themselves, they wanted to destroy Jesus. That's crazy. So here are our two options. The name that was chosen for this series is Who do you say that I am in reference to Jesus? Who do you say that he is? But here's a good question. Here's two options. Who do you say that you are? You and I can either be people who have had our sins forgiven by him so that we can recline and dine and celebrate with him and take him up on what he's offering so that we can get the healing we need. That's option one. Or you can try to plot in vain to try to destroy him and his work in your life. Mark is trying to get you to make that decision, that decisive decision. What Mark has shown us in these last five stories should help make us and our choice an obvious one, right? One option is clearly better than the other one. And speaking of one of two options about being better than the other one, last week Pastor Danny got a quick jab in during the message time about flashing an I love San Francisco 49ers graphic on the screen. Remember that? For those of you that are new here, you might not know this, but I was born and raised in Kansas and I've been a lifelong Chiefs fan. So Pastor and Danny and I are at odds with one another when it comes to rooting for football teams, and he landed a quick jab last Sunday, strike. Well, now it's time for the counter strike. <laughs> Pastor Danny, I hope you've been paying attention, but I just want to make sure that everybody else is paying attention to the sermon notes this week. Can you please stand up and read all the fill-in-the-blanks for us? Do you have those down? Do you got all the fill-in-the-blanks? What does it say? What are the fill in the blanks for us this week? What does it say? Your team won. How about them Chiefs? (laughs) I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to make sermons based off of (laughs) things like that. But... I I was just laying in bed last Sunday. I was like, how could I say it? How can I say it? (laughs) Surely Mark can give me something, right? Right. There was a decisive and obvious choice that we all should have made about the Chiefs, right? Way more importantly, there's a way more important decision and decisive, obvious choice that we should all make about Jesus. 
We need to accept him as your savior, as our savior, me too. Instead of trying just to save ourselves, we won't be able to do it. You won't be able to, that's what Mark is trying to show you. You won't be able to do it. You will lose that game. Yeah, you might look good on the outside with all of your religious rule keeping, but all the while God is looking at your heart. And on judgment day, everything that is hidden will be revealed. And so who do you say that you are? Are you someone who says, look, I desperately need Jesus? Or are you someone who says, you know what, I think I can do pretty good without him. I'm doing okay without him. Keep him at an arm's distance. I'll play the game myself. Who are you? Who do you say that you are? Let's pray. God, I pray that we would recognize that we are desperately in need of who you are. God, we've been shown these five stories to lead us to a a very tender moment of of decision-making as to what we're going to do with you. And God, we are getting ready to move into a time of of communion too where we can recognize how we can be made right with you in the first place, and that's through the sacrifice of the ultimate goat um, who gave his life, the, the, the slaughtered lamb, the one that all those Day of Atonement lambs was pointing to. And you are the bridegroom who has committed yourself to us in all of our flaws, just as we are. And you've asked us to come and follow and recline and dine with you, to celebrate you, to be associated with you and take you up on what you were offering to us and all of your accomplishments. God, I pray that that choice would be very crystal clear for us to make today. So God, as we transition into communion, as we reflect on the the symbolism of these elements, God, we sing this song and we would ask that you would help us to identify with maybe one of these verses or maybe all of them, um, recognizing that we come to you just as we are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and stand and let's go ahead and sing these uh, four stanzas as we transition into a time of Holy Communion.